Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. Today we do India, or we start India. We do Indian geography. And let's get started. India. Indian geography has two major rivers. Now, there are other major rivers, but these are the two big ones that will affect the rest of this course. There's the Indus and the Ganges. And the Indus is where India gets its name from. Or maybe India gives its name to the Indus. Either way, the irony of this today is that the Indus is not in India, even though they both share the name. The Indus goes from the Hindu Kush up in Afghanistan through what is today Pakistan all the way to the Indian Ocean. This tells you that Pakistan used to be part of India. And in fact, it is. There is no Pakistan until 1947. Now, if you wanted to find Pakistan as a Muslim-dominated part of the subcontinent, then that goes back almost 1,500 years or 1,000 years. So that's true, but a country named Pakistan, a separate place named Pakistan, a separate identity from the rest of the subcontinent is much, much, much younger. The Ganges, so the Indus runs from north to south from Afghanistan to the uh, Indian Ocean, and it provides the western border for India. In fact, all the great conquerors will hit the headwaters on the Indus and come on down, whether it's Alexander, whether it is Mahmud, whether it is uh, Tamerlane. These guys are all going to hit the river and come down into uh, Pakistan slash India, which is why today the country of Pakistan wants to dominate Afghanistan and uses the Taliban and allows the Taliban to have a safe haven in parts of the Northwest territories of Pakistan because history says we have to own that part of Afghanistan. If we don't, someone eventually comes along, invades us, takes us over. And that's bad for everybody. The Ganges runs across northern India from the west to the east and ends in the Bay of Bengal, where today modern Bangladesh is. It is fairly easy to jump from the Indus to the Ganges and from the Ganges to the Indus. It's a five-day, in the ancient world, it was about a five-day journey. You had to go through the Thar Desert. It's not the easiest of journeys, but you could do it. And um, many conquerors do. The Persians don't. Alexander doesn't. But the Turkish tribes, the Central Asian tribes... The Muslim tribes who come in in the early Middle Ages, in the 1,000, uh, 1,200s, 1,500s, they do. They jump over, and once you hit the Ganges, you could go all the way to the Bay of Bengal, 
a uh, thousand miles or more to the east. The thing, though, that this does is these two rivers are in the north. They unite the north. They make it very easy for you to conquer northern India. Southern India, on the other hand, is completely cut off. There are no major routes to go from north to south. In fact, the south gets more jungle, more tropical, more rainforest, and... So conquerors who start going to the south, uh, take a look at all the maps in a textbook. You see they, it's fairly easy to conquer the north because the rivers provide that transportation. It's very hard to conquer the south. There aren't as many big cities. There's not as many as big kingdoms. It's very hard to, to conquer it and hold on to it. The Indus also provides the only connection to the outside world. Otherwise, you need boats ocean-going vessels to get to India. So, for India, there's one connection. Through the Hindu Kush to Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to the trade routes, to the Silk Road, to the trade routes of the Middle East. So, what these do is provide a connection to Asia, to the rest of Asia. That's what the Indus does. The two rivers provide a connection across the north, and what all of these rivers do is provide agriculture, cities, trade, and knowledge. Why? Because the rivers give you agriculture. Agriculture gets you cities, as we talked about. Cities get you trade. Trade makes you money. Money makes you invest in your future, in your education. And so you end up with knowledge. So the north is going to be more advanced than the south. The north is going to be richer. The north is going to be more connected. The more rich, the north is going to be more sophisticated and more knowledgeable. The north is going to be more urban than the south. The second geographic feature is the Himalayas. The Himalayas are the largest mountains on earth. How do I know that? Because they contain Mount Everest, the largest mountain on earth. So what do, they, what do they do? They provide protection. All of these Central Asian nomadic tribes that are going back and forth from, from conquering parts of India to conquering parts of Iran, all of them must have looked to their left and said, I wonder what's over those mountains. Do you want to conquer what's on the, over those mountains? Do you want to take what's over those mountains? Do you want to take their food? Do you want to take their women? Do you want to take their stuff? And people went, yeah, let's do it. And they took their horses, and they went into Tibet. They went into the foothills of the mountains, and they looked up at those mountains and said, yeah, no. They looked up at the mountains, how they go straight up, and said, yeah, uh, no, 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 no. Let's just keep on going. And so they provide protection from invasions. The only major invasions until the British show up by sea are really going to be down the Indus River, that one connection point. But here's the problem. By protecting India, it also isolates India from much of the major knowledge, from much of the major trade routes. They are, they are off. 
the Silk Road. They are not on the main Silk Road. The main Silk Road goes from China into the Middle East, Middle East into Europe. They are an off-ramp. There's one way in. So if you want to go to India, you got to go through the Hindu Kush. you got to go down the Indus. That's going to limit the amount of interactions with foreign peoples. It just does. And so that limits the amount of different ideas that come in. Now, there will be connections, and a lot of those connections are through conquest, through, through being conquered by these other places who are then going to suck out what knowledge there is. But it does mean India is fairly isolated from the mix of ideas going on in the rest of the world. So the Indian imperial experience. What India is so old, China is as well, that we can that we can actually look at what's called the long durée, the the long line of history and see patterns. And in terms of the imperial experience, in terms of how India is organized, there's a pattern. And that is we start with one India. There's one India that stretches from the mountains to the sea in the north to the south and from Persia, the deserts of Persia, to the Bay of Bengal from the west to the east. That is one India. And what happens to our one India is it breaks up. Like any good high school romance, it breaks up. Now, there's a couple options of what to happen. It breaks up into pieces. All right. We've seen this process before. The Roman Empire breaks up into pieces. And then what Justinian did was try to put it back together. Uh, we see this in China. We'll talk about this. But what happens in India is that it breaks up. And then it breaks up even more. Remember the geography. The geography doesn't connect people. It separates people. It separates India from Central Asia. It separates the north of India from the south of India. It separates the west from the east of India. So India breaks up even more. It breaks up into hundreds and thousands of little kingdoms all with their own kings. When the British show up in the seven, early 1700s, there are some 3,000 kings. Each king has a kingdom. This is very much what Europe looked like in the Middle Ages. Before you get your super states, before you get your England and your France and your united Germany and your united Italy. Germany had 300 little kingdoms in it. Dukedoms, kings, electors. France had many princes, some great ones, some small ones. So following the Roman Empire, Europe breaks up into lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of little pieces. And what happens is over the next couple hundred years and lots of blood and lots of fire and lots of war... Europe slowly coalesced into several large states. In India, we have, the, we have that process, but we don't get the unification. We get it breaking up even more. And so this is how 
why Indian culture is so broken up today, why there are so many different languages, why there are so many different traditions, why there are so many different belief systems, why there are um, different religions and, well, everything, from food to everything else. India is one is not one giant thing, even though we call it India. India is hundreds and thousands of subunits. And geography plays a large part of that. So, but wait a minute. I look up on my map, and on my map, there's an India. Well, how do we get that? Well, for the most part, it's foreign invasion, foreign conquest. Whether it's the British, whether it's Alexander, whether it's uh, Mahmud, Or the Mauryans. And we'll, the Mauryans are an exception, and we'll talk about that. They get an asterisk, and we're actually going to spend some time on the Mauryans. But usually it's a foreigner who comes in and smushes it all together. Why? Because a foreigner looks at India and says, it's rich. And it's divided. And the division makes it weak. But the division also makes it much poorer because it's less efficient. If we could go in, smash down all those borders, smash down all those boundaries, and smush everybody together, imagine what we could get out of India. And that's what the British will do. That's what a succession of foreign conquerors, mostly from Afghanistan, mostly from Central Asia, will do. And then they create one India. And then India breaks up again. This is what happened in my grandfather's lifetime, in the last century. Britain came in in the 1700s and in the 1800s and smushed India together. Whether it wanted to or not, it smushed it all together. Following the Sepoy Mutiny in 1856, the British put their stamp on it. They're going to make it Little Britain. They're going to make it British. Our little brown brothers as the story went, as the saying went in the 1880s. And so you have the British Raj, R-A-J, where Queen Victoria was literally the empress of India. Whether the Indians wanted her or not, she was. And then what happened? Well, the First World War happened, and then the Second World War happened, and Indians started to say, hey, we want an independent India, and... Indian Muslims said, we want an independent Muslim kingdom, and Gandhi comes along and, and charms the world, and, and boom, in 1947, Lord Mountbatten goes and, quote-unquote, gives India back to the Indians, and it immediately falls apart. It immediately breaks up into India, which is the Hindu stand, where the Hindus are living, but it also breaks into Pakistan. It breaks into Sri Lanka and Bhutan and Nepal, even though Bhutan and Nepal really were kind of independent kingdoms at the time. They were still more or less under the rule of the Raj, and so was a part of Afghanistan. And so all of these pieces kind of broke apart into, the, into their different pieces. They were once ruled by one central government more or less, for all intents and purposes. And now, 
They're doing their own thing. And it broke into all these parts. And then later on, Pakistan breaks into Bangladesh and Pakistan. Sri Lanka will have a civil war and break into parts for about 25 years. India is a f more or less a federal system where the states have a lot of power to be independent. Pakistan has started the breakup with the Northwest, the Taliban, and the terrorists in the Northwest territories. The Pashtuns effectively have their own state in Punjab-led Pakistan. Afghanistan is essentially broken into two parts. Southern Afghanistan, where we have done a lot of fighting, where the Taliban are, Pashtun Afghanistan, who are tied to northwestern Pakistan, is one country for all intents and purposes. And northern, northeastern Afghanistan is a completely different country. It has Tajiks, it has Uzbeks. It has a whole other group of speaking people who aren't necessarily like the people in the South. And the people in the South don't necessarily like the people in the North. And in fact, Afghanistan has broken because of the wars since 1980. It's basically fiefdoms. There's all these warlords. So you have, there aren't even really countries. There's, there's Kabul, the government in Kabul, which runs the central government, but doesn't really own anything, doesn't really control anything. It has to negotiate with all these guys with guns and all over Afghanistan, some of which, especially in the South, are perfectly willing to work with the Taliban. And so we are living in this breaking up even more phase. My grandparents lived through the breaking up phase. And in fact, it's the 70th anniversary of the part what's called the partition. If you were Indian or if you're a Pakistani, you need to ask your parents about or your grandparents about the partition because it's the most traumatic event in their lifetime. Some 10 million people are affected by it. Or on the move. It's the largest mass migration of people. All of it is almost, a lot of it is forced. There's murder along the way. So on both sides, both, both Muslim groups and Hindu groups murdered each other. Murdered innocent civilians in order to purge their country of what they saw as a foreigner who had ruined their country, who had lived together for 1,500 years, not always nicely, and that's part of what we'll talk about in future lectures on India, but they did live together. So this brings us to the Aryans. The Aryans are our first foreign invader. They come in around 1000 BC. They are chariot warriors from the Middle East, from the Caucasus Mountains. They are part of the Bronze Age collapse. And the Aryans will basically give birth to two civilizations. One of them is Iran, which is basically the name of for Aryan. Iran calls itself Aryan. Just change the emphasis on the English vowels. You can see that. Um... Because the group split up 
as it moved, and part of it settled on the plateaus of Iran, which will eventually be conquered by the Persians, and everybody gets assimilated, uh, Medes and the Persians, and everyone assimilates. Uh, but another group will enter into Afghanistan, from Afghanistan down the Indus, from the Indus to the Ganges, and basically conquer the subcontinent. They are chariot warriors. So they are sophisticated and they are tough. They are from a tough neighborhood. They are like the Hiskos who went east rather than south. They are foreign conquerors who are going to run India. And what they're going to do is bring a cultural change with them. Their new foreign ideas. First of all, their technology. Their horses, their chariots, their stir their, they don't have stirrups. They're all of their bracing that connects the horse to the to the chariot. They're bringing with their Mesopotamian people, they're bringing with them Mesopotamian ideas. especially new gods. And from this, we're going to get Hinduism and the caste system. Now, how do we get Hinduism? Well, Hinduism is going to be the combination of the religion and the gods that already existed, the settled people's religion. There are Bronze Age people. Now, what happens is India forgets it has a Bronze Age. The Bronze Age collapsed. During the Bronze Age collapse, India collapsed. And it went into a dark age, and the Aryans conquered into that, onto those people who were trying to make their living in this dark age, following the Bronze Age collapse, or in the midst of the Bronze Age collapse. And what happened, basically, is the Aryans said, well, we're here, that this is year one. Forget all the past stuff. And they did. It wasn't until the 20th century that archaeologists started to find ancient cities and go, what the hell is this stuff? It's not supposed to be here. India had forgotten it had a Bronze Age and then discovered it had a Bronze Age and went, wow, we are older than we thought we were. And Indian civilization goes back as old or almost as old as settled urban civilization in Mesopotamia and in China. But it had forgotten that because that's how traumatic the Bronze Age collapse was. And so what you get is a combination of gods. You get settled people's, um, settled people's methods, you know, your temples, your priests, your professional priests. But the Aryans are warrior people, so they bring with them warrior gods. And we see this in what's called the Vedas, V-E-D-A-S. The most famous of which is the Rig Veda, R-I-G-V-E-D-A. The Rig Veda, which is the stories of heroes and gods at war. These are warrior gods, warrior heroes doing warrior awesome stuff. And that makes complete sense. They're warrior people, but now they're settling down. And when they settle down, they go, well, we got to make our religion more. We got to make our gods more impressive than they were when we were on the move for 500 years. Looking for a homeland. The Hebrews do the same thing. The Hebrews in Exodus are very, very different than the Hebrews under Solomon. Solomon's going to build a temple. David has built a, a city. Solomon's going to build the temple. We're going to have thousands of priests. We're going to be serious about this. We're no longer living in tents on the move. Well, the Aryans are the same people. They're not literally the same people as the Hebrews, but they're the same 
situation. They're people on the move looking for a new homeland. And when they put down roots, they start to build upon those roots. But they bring their gods with them. And so you get Hinduism. The second thing you get is the caste system. And you get separation by job. Why? Why do you get the caste system? Well, it's very simple. Teenagers. Wait, why? Why do teenagers have anything to do with the caste system? Well, here's the thing. Our Aryans are warrior people. What do they look like? If you were to look at one on his chariot, being pulled by his horse, pulling back his, the, the string on the bow, throwing his javelin, his spear, what does he look like? He is going to be jacked. He is going to be sexy man. These are tough, warrior, sexy men. Uh, for those of you who have done military service or ever dated somebody in military service, imagine, remember what they look like or what you look like after basic training. You looked awesome. These guys looked awesome. And do are there plenty of hot Indian, especially Indian girls? Yeah, of course there are. And so if you let teenagers just be teenagers, what's going to happen? Your super hot Aryan boys are going to hook up with super hot Indian girls. Now, here's the problem with that. Why is that a problem? The problem is that the Indians are the native people. They vastly outnumber the Aryans. Vastly. By millions, they'll outnumber them. And so if you just let teenagers be teenagers, you will get assimilated. There is not enough Aryans. And their culture, their people will be Assyrian. And what happens is, you take 100% of awesome and combine it with 0% of awesome. And you go, well, why, why, what's 0% awesome? Well, that's the Indians. We conquered them. They're not awesome. Yes, their girls are cute, but they're not awesome. So if you take 100% plus 0% and divide it by 2, you get 50%. Do it again. That's 25%. Do it again. 12%. Do it again. 6%. And that's one old man's lifetime. In one old man's lifetime, he watched his people go from the conquerors of India, super sexy warrior people from, from the mountains of the Caucasus, to what? To basically the eyebrows on their great-grandson. Oh, he has your eyebrows. Oh, great. 6% is like what people who, who, who lie about being part of Indian tribes so they could try to get some of the money of a casino. That's what they claim to be. Oh, about 6% because it's not nothing. It's not 1%. That's too low. But it can't be 25%. If it's 25%, you say, oh, I have grandparents, and I have this, and I look at me. I look, the, I look, try, I look a member of the tribe. 6%, you're like, well, you know, you know, my uncle had, you know. And so that's a giant worry. And that's a giant worry for everybody. That's a giant worry for the Hebrews because that's what's going to happen to Israel. The Israelites are going to be assimilated in. That's going to be a, a worry about the Hebrews again when the Romans conquer them and spread them out 
uh, in 100 AD. This is the worry of all peoples. When you are a minority in a larger majority, how do you keep your culture? When biology will assimilate you, simple numbers will make you disappear. What do you do? Remember, in the United States, it was illegal until what, 1967, 1972? For black men and white women to get married. It was also illegal for white men to marry black women. But the real reason we have the, mis, uh, the miscegenation laws, in the, especially in the South, are to keep black men from being with white women. Jim Crow is based upon that. The KKK is based upon that. There's a whole bunch of American civilization based upon... Uh, it's To Kill a Mockingbird. Harper Lee's big courtroom scene is about the sexual power of a black man being with a white woman and how terrible that would be to Southern society. And that's why they, they find him guilty and then they kill the man. He's then murdered later on. So, civilizations worry about this. And so, what do we do? And the answer the Aryans come up with, the answer India comes up with, is the caste system. C-A-S-T-E. The caste system. Which is separation by job. You separate everyone into their little jobs by what their father had. And girls get included too. They get included in the caste of whatever job their father has. So if I am a warrior, if my father is a warrior level three, what am I going to be? I am going to be a warrior level three too. What are my kids going to be? They're going to be warrior level threes. But here... Now that sounds like segregation. I'm going to separate myself from other people. And who's going to get the best jobs? The Aryans are going to get the best jobs, of course. And then generation after generation after generation, they're going to have the best jobs. The Indians will be mostly laborers. The landowners will be Aryans. All the government jobs will be Aryans. So how is this not apartheid? How is this not segregation in the South, both of which only last for about 100 years? How does the caste system last thousands of years? And the answer is, unlike apartheid and unlike Jim Crow segregation, both of which said there's a whole lot of rights that we get, white people get, but you don't get. And in both cases, it's black people. You don't get. We're going to get all the rights. You're going to get none of the rights. Unlike that system, the caste system said, no, 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 no. Everybody gets something. Everyone's going to get something. And what they got was community. They got community and stability, and protection. They get something out of it. 
so that even people near the bottom say, all right, this is all right. It's not great, but it's all right. It could be worse. And if you want a social system to survive, you want people to say it could be worse. The moment they say it can't be worse, revolutions start. And so what the caste system does is give you a community. Why? My father's a warrior level three. So when what am I going to be? I'm going to be I'm going to be born and I am warrior level three. And that sounds great. That's good for me. What does that mean practically? Well, it means when I go to school, when I go into the first grade, what class am I going into? I'm going into warrior level three class. And who's going to be in that class? Warrior level threes. Everybody in there is going to be warrior level three. And I'm going to know a bunch of them. Why? Because they're my father's homeboys. They're my mother's homegirls. So I've already met these people. I already know these people. So when I go to school, there they are. So I already have friendships. And who is my first crush going to be on? A warrior level three. Who am I taking to prom? A warrior level three. Who's going to be on my f football soccer team? Warrior level threes. What night am I going to bowl on? Wednesday. Obviously, warrior level three night. And my league will be a warrior level three league where I'll bowl against other warrior level threes. When I have barbecues, warrior level threes are going to come over. When I have kids, when I get married, my best man will be a warrior level three. When I get married, I will be to the daughter of a warrior level three who I have known since the first grade. When I when we have children, they will be warrior level threes. And when we have parties, all my warrior level three friends who I have known forever are going to come and bring their warrior level three kids. And when I die, I will be mourned by warrior level threes. Their children who are warrior level threes, whom I have known my entire life. I also get the security of knowing I have a job. I am a warrior level three no matter what. I can't be promoted. That sucks. But I can't be demoted. That's good. You ask anyone who's watched their factory disappear and go off to Mexico or China, ask any Trump voter in rural Pennsylvania about how they feel about the possibility of not having a job tomorrow. They'd much rather have a job that pays than the $12 an hour they were making rather than the nothing they're getting now. And you say, well, you could go into computer programming. You could make $200,000 a year. And they're like, yeah, I would have liked to have had the $15 an hour job and not have to go through all the instability. Thank you. But you could move to Silicon Valley. You could live in San Francisco. Missing the entire point. Moving up is nice, but not moving down. Having the stability of knowing that the ground beneath your feet is firm. And if you've ever been in an earthquake, let me tell you, if you haven't been in an earthquake, let me tell you, when the earth starts moving, and I mean like 6, 6.5, 7 moving, you don't... You, 
you know, that's a whole nother world. Because I'm used to the ground beneath my feet not moving. And then you're in a 6.5 and everything shakes. And sometimes rolls and you're, wow. That is not supposed to happen. And so when I die in the caste system, I am mourned by people who have known me my entire life. I get that community. I get that security. I don't do anything alone. I get protection from other castes. I get protection from the people above me and I get protection from the people below me. Why? The people below me aren't going to mess with me. I am tougher than they are. I have more money than they are and I got a better crew of homeboys than they do. So they're not going to mess with me. And if they do, I call up my homeboys who I have known. Like the stock boy at the local supermarket is sexually harassing my daughter who I sent to the supermarket just to buy some stuff. I don't go and beat up that kid and teach him a lesson. I call up my homeboys who are going to have daughters because half of children are daughters. I'm going to say this guy, this stock kid is sexually harassing my daughter. If he's sexually harassing my daughter, he's going to sexually harass your daughter. Let's take care of this. And we go off as a group. We don't do it alone. I always have a crew. And we're going to teach this kid a lesson. Why? Because he's a stock boy. He obviously isn't up to the warrior level three level. If my daughter has a problem with a fellow warrior level three, with a teenage boy who's a warrior level three, I, she can come to me and be like, dad, mom, this happened. And I can call up this guy who I have known since the first grade and be like, what the WTF? So I get protection within my group because everyone knows each other. And I get protection from above. Why? Because I'm not worth messing with. My daughter's not worth messing with. Why? Because you're better than I am. Everyone knows you're better. If you're a warrior level one, what are you doing slumming it, hanging out, taking advantage of, beating up a warrior level three? It's like the, a, a high schooler beating up a sixth grader. I mean, what are you doing? I went to the Bouncy House Trampoline Park last weekend. And there was a 15-year-old in the dodgeball ball in the in the trampoline dodgeball section. And he's whipping this ball. He's 14, 15, and he's whipping this ball at like eight-year-olds. It's like, what are you doing? Well, they wanted to play dodgeball. You and we just had him kicked out of the place. Why? Because he's going to hurt somebody. You want to go and you want to play dodgeball with eight-year-olds and you're 15 or you're 20 or you're 25? You don't play to win. You throw your little ball. They dodge. They're eight. They laugh at you. And you go, ha, 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 ha. They throw a ball at you and you... you 
try to jump out of the way but get hit anyway and you're like oh you got me and they laugh because they got one on you but in the truth in your heart of hearts none none of this counts why because if you wanted to you could crush them so you gain nothing by crushing them they are beneath you they are lower than you you don't gain any glory you don't gain any honor being up an eight-year-old what are you doing What are you doing? What are you trying to prove? And so you gain protection. Now, I, I have no hope that that kid is ever going to hear this podcast. But you know what? I, if he ever does, you know who you are. And you deserve to be ashamed of yourself. Being up on little kids. Gain no honor doing that. Making little kids cry. And so you gain in the caste system protection from people above. Because you're not worth messing with. You don't get any honor from it. You can't brag, oh, I beat up a warrior level 3. When you're a warrior level 1. Or a king. Or a prince. People will go, yeah, of course you can do that. Why'd you do it? Why'd you go out of your way to stamp on these people? And so you gain protection from above, but you gain protection from below. No one wants to mess with you from below, and no one's, and you're not worth messing with from above. So you get this stability and you gain this protection, which is what people want. We've been talking about stability and protection ever since the cities of Mesopotamia trying to protect themselves from nomads. We talked about it in Old Kingdom Egypt, which this is the power of the pharaoh. Now, why would anyone accept this system if they can't move up? I know you're capitalists. I know you believe in like you want, but, but motivation is to be better than everybody else. Well, first of all, this isn't a capitalist system. The second thing is, why would the lower orders accept being the lower orders? Because you do have a system where you can move up. That's called samsara. S-A-M-S-A-R-A and karma. K-A-R-M-A. Karma is the list of stuff that you've done. It is not the Buddhist. We're not talking the Buddhist concept of karma where it's if you do good things, good things will happen to you. That's Buddhist. The, the, the original concept of karma is it's a list just like Christianity has the, the, the doomsday book. It's a list of all the good things and a list of all the bad things. And if your good stuff outnumbers your bad stuff, samsara kicks in and you get to be reborn. You come back. There is no heaven. There is no hell. That's an abyss. That's good. And you have to remember, in the Middle Ages, nobody went to heaven. You had to be a saintly grandmama to get into heaven. And even they, well, once they were a teenager. So they're probably going to hell for at least a little bit. You know, you live in the, talk about participation trophies, heaven is the participation trophy. So if you're mad about millennial soccer kids getting participation trophies, but you think you deserve to get into heaven, there's Dante and a bunch of medieval Italians who are like, why do you get into heaven and do all those crappy things? Think those crappy thoughts. Uh, You're not only in hell, you're like in level six. 
level seven. You're dawn. You're deep in the hell. You ain't getting out for a long time. Participation troll. You're mad at these kids. And you think you deserve to go to heaven. That you're so wonderful. You can't even follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you want done unto you. You go into heaven. That's a participation trophy. But that's the modern world. So what are you going to do? Everyone gets to go into heaven. If you say you're sorry, boom, you get into heaven. Boy, those restrictions eased up. So samsara in the Hindu tradition allows you to come back. You come back. And if you have more good things than bad things, you come up as something better. And if you have more bad things in your life than good things, you come down, you come back as something worse. So if I am a warrior level three, I want to move up to a warrior level two. If I'm really, 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 really good, I can move up to a warrior level one. It's going to take a long time, hundreds of rebirths to do this. So what's the incentive? The incentive is for everybody to have as good of a life as they can, to be as good in their caste as possible, to be as good of a warrior level three as possible. Why? Because I get to move up. And no matter what you are, you can come back as something else. So you're, you're an Indian native and you wanna come, you, you're really good at what you're doing? Boom, you can come back as an Aryan landlord. And you move up to nirvana and nirvana and i r v a n a nirvana is oneness with the universe it's not a place it's a state of being it's you stop coming back because here's the thing and buddha will bring this up is it gets exhausting to keep coming back i've known lots of old people in my time and all of them said the same thing i'm tired life is exhausting He also said, never get old. And turn off your hearing aid when your husband starts talking. So, that's the advice I get from old people. Never get old. I'm tired. And turn off your hearing aid. Life just is much better. Nirvana, on the other hand, is oneness with the universe. You stop coming back. It's not heaven. It's just a glorious energy that's part of the universe again. It obeys, interestingly, the law of thermodynamics, the first law of thermodynamics, which says energy can never be created nor destroyed. It can only be repurposed. And that, and this is way before, 2,000 years before, 3,000 years before thermodynamics, and yet they have the same principle with your soul, with your energy, your energy on the move. Well, when you die, you stop moving. What happens to that energy? It goes back into the universe. It either comes back in a new human form, or it goes back into the universe and becomes stardust. And so that's the casteism. That will provide stability because it gives everyone an incentive to be good in their job as it is. To not be like, oh, I wish I was something else. I'm going to demand to be something else. I'm going to burn stuff down to be something else. It provides that glue because it says if you are a good person, you will be that something else. You will move up. 
All right. So when we come back, we're going to talk politics, the Mauryan Empire, and then we're going to do Buddhism. Thank you.